We're looking this morning at the subject, the hurt of evil times. The first thing you'll notice in your bulletin outline is that evil times have always been. Apart from the Garden of Eden, which was home to our first parents, since the fall into sin, there has been no paradise on earth. Sometimes people refer to a Caribbean getaway or a tranquil tropical island as paradise, but they are generally referring to the beauty of such places, the lush plant life, the crystal blue waters, <coughs> the lack of industrial pollution, the tropical breeze of warm days and cool nights. And all this equals paradise on earth. That's the words they use. But while there are many places on the globe which have these similar botanical and meteorological characteristics, no consideration is given to the people who populate such areas and the truth that people of every nationality and every culture are enslaved by sin and it is the sinful nature of man that blights the environment or, or creation. I think the environmentalists have a point when they lay the blame for polluted air and poisoned waterways on the reckless behavior of men. They have a point about that. Now, you know, they make a god out of nature sometimes. And, you know, would to God that they would uh, think more seriously about human beings. But they at least have that point. I was watching a program on the uh, Geographic Channel called Dual Survivors. And what they do is they drop these two guys into wild and woolly places on earth. In this particular episode, uh, they dropped these two guys into the rainforest of our extreme northwest. Now, I didn't even know that we had a rainforest in the extreme northwest of our country, but there is, and they have to survive on whatever they can scrounge in the forest. That's why they call the program Dual Survivors. And some of what they find are what? They're throwaways from former hikers. Beer bottles, string, plastic bags, discarded coolers or parts of coolers, clothing, and all kinds of other debris. Now, none of these things are toxic in themselves, but they certainly mar the beauty of the forest, and they make for a less than pristine environment. But with that said, this is not the most horrendous uh, happening to the environment. The most horrendous plague on the environment is what evil men devise and do to their fellow men. The wickedness they think up and then the wickedness that they do. God's instruction, excuse me, God's destruction of the earth as we know it in the terrible waters of Noah's flood was not due to the fact that people were cutting trees in the rainforest or overfishing the Tigris and Euphrates rivers or failing to come to the aid of the spotted owl. That is not why the destruction came about. No, rather as God said himself, 
the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Genesis 6, verse 5 through 7. What polluted paradise was not discarded beer bottles, candy wrappers, and untreated garbage. It was how great man's wickedness on earth had become. Genesis 6, verse 5. The problem, brethren, was moral pollution, not environmental pollution. The latter proceeds from the former. Those who don't give a rip about their fellow man don't give a rip about maintaining the purity of the environment. When Cain declined to be his brother's keeper, he was trying to cover up his murder of Abel, his brother. The curse from God upon Cain was that his farming of the land would henceforth be fruitless. Let me read it for you. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. Genesis 4, verse 12. Now, was that because Cain was not using environmentally friendly agricultural techniques? Is that the reason the ground wasn't going to yield its crops? No. Verse 11 goes on to say, You are driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The ground was polluted with Abel's blood due to the murder by his brother Cain. And that's why farmer Cain was going to have trouble henceforth growing crops. The psalmist prayed, Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked from the noisy crowd of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They shoot at him suddenly without fear. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares and they say, who will see them? They plot injustice and say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man, of man are cunning, but God will shoot them with arrows. Suddenly they will be struck down. He will turn their own tongues against them and bring them to ruin. All who see them will shake their heads in scorn. And all mankind will fear and they will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him and let all the upright in heart Praise Him. That's Psalm 64, verses 2 through 10. Did you notice in that section of Psalms that the evil of which the psalmist speaks is directed towards the righteous, towards people he calls the innocent? You know, this is confirmed again and again in the Bible, not just with Cain and Abel, but from that point on. 
For example, we read in Psalm 10, In his arrogance the wicked man hunts down the weak. That's who he goes after. The weak. Who are caught in the schemes that he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and he reviles the Lord. And in his pride the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts there's no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He's haughty. Your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. Psalm 10, verse 2 through 7. The psalmist is describing how mankind generally is. See? And the wicked prey on the righteous, the weak. Again, Psalm 11, verse 2. For look, the wicked hand bends their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. That's who they shoot at. Psalm 11, verse 2. Or again, God laments through Jeremiah and he says, Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongues like a bow to shoot lies. It's not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 9, verse 2 and 3. And sadly, he's saying that about Israel, who are acting just like the wicked pagans around them. Or once again from Ecclesiastes and the writing of the wise man. He writes, this is an evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men moreover are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards they join the dead. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3. So my point is that evil times have always been, this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. From the time of Adam's fall, evil has always been. It started right away. It was in Adam's own immediate family. A brother killed another brother. We didn't even get out of Adam's family before murder was on the docket of man's behavior. You read some of those earlier chapters in Genesis, you'll see another descendant named Lamech, and he actually writes a song about somebody he murdered. So they're writing poetry about it. See, no conscience. Immediately, they're turned away from God, thoughts of God, thoughts of judgment. They just think they're a law unto themselves. But having said that, number two, evil times are predicted to get worse in the end days. Now, just in your short lifespan, I'll bet you could use the word worse in your own life. How old are you? 40, 50? 
older, 80, you're in your mid-30s, just in your lifespan, I'll bet you could use, honestly use, the word worse when it comes to evil. In our text, Paul lays down some criteria which will act as indicators of the Lord's return and some things that are really going to get worse. First criteria, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, look at verse 3. That day, the coming of the Lord, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Now, the first question we have is what rebellion? What rebellion? Jesus predicted, let me read it for you, Matthew 24. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Look at many, 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 many. You hear all that in these texts, these words of Christ? And deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. There it is. The love of most will grow cold. Matthew 24. Verse 10 through 12. So we go many, 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 most. That's not upwards. That's downward. Things are going from bad to worse. Now, as we read Jesus' words, there are internal church problems here. People turning away from the faith, he says. Betraying and hating one another. For all we want to say about the world and people of the world, we better listen up to what Christ is saying about his professing church. There are also external problems. He goes on to say, false prophets arising whose messages are full of deception, an escalation of wickedness and coldness seeping in to chill the passion of love that ought to be among the people. This is why in the parallel text of Mark 13, Jesus taught, brother will betray brother to death. Wow, you mean it's going to get that bad? Yeah. And a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Now you know that is about as cold a freeze of love as you can get when family no longer counts for warmth and love. When family becomes your enemy. Jesus says, it's coming. And by the way, if you watch the news consistently, you'll see it's all ready here. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, verse 17, judgment begins with the house of God. This is a very scary verse. Why the house of God? Well, I think it is an indictment on our failure as God's people to inculcate in ourselves those godly propositions that we teach to one another and to which we give mental assent but seldom put into practice. God judges us first to show the world that there's no partiality with God. And that he hates hypocrisy wherever he may find it. Much of Jesus' rebukes in the New Testament 
were to the religious Pharisees whom he called hypocrites. Time after time. Read Matthew 23. Just verse after verse he calls them hypocrites. Because they said one thing or they taught one thing and did another. Now my question is, has the day of rebellion come? Jesus said, or Paul is saying, this is one of the criteria for the coming of Christ. We need to see this rebellion taking place. Has it come? Has it, to ask it another way, has it started? Are we seeing people, long time thought to be true believers, turning away from the faith and either dropping out of church involvement or becoming hostile to the people of faith? Do you think people are warm-hearted, loving, friendly towards one another and genuinely interested to pray for one another, to counsel with one another, and to help the brethren? Do we see that? Or, or, are most professing believers maintaining their distance from any serious involvement with God's people? I think the rebellion which has always been indicative of the wicked's posture towards God can be seen in the external Christianity as people malign and slander and oppose the gospel of, get it now, grace. Want to work your way to heaven? You won't be opposed. Preach that you're a sinner and you can't work your way to heaven and God needs to be gracious to you and you'll get lots of opposition. It's an opposition to the gospel of grace and to the Christ behind that gospel as affirmed in the apostolic teaching. There's no time for truth. Paul said to Timothy, you know, the day is going to come when people won't put up with sound teaching. They just will not abide it. They won't put up with it. They'll go somewhere where a preacher or a speaker will scratch their itching ears and feed them with the things they want to hear. They won't be pointed to Christ. They won't be pointed to a cross. Ooh, cross? Ooh, that's ugly. You know, that speaks of death and blood. And, mm, I don't want to hear that. Yeah, but that's what it takes and that's what it took to redeem sinners and they don't want to hear that. Tell us a different gospel. Paul says there is only one gospel, and anything else is a perverted gospel. But the perverted gospel is preached everywhere in our country under the guise of being Christian. So the first indicator, Christ is not going to come until this rebellion occurs. It's already starting. We're already seeing the defection from the faith. Secondly, there's a second indicator. For the Lord's return, verse 3 also, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now this is the one that John refers to as anti-Christ. In his first epistle he states, dear children, this is the last hour. I like that way he says that, but it's also scary. He's not saying this is the last decade. He's not saying this is the last century. He's not saying this is the last millennium. He says, folks, we're in the last hour. Peter says that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And John says, okay, day, but we're in the last hour. 
Something to think about. It's already the last hour. How do we know it's the last hour? He says, this is how we know it is the last hour. They are many antichrists have come. He goes on. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God. Such a man is the antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 2, verse 18, verse 22. So here John states what all of us have been taught since our dispensational days, and that is that there is one coming. John calls him the, puts the article in front of it, the Antichrist. There's one coming who is empowered with the supernatural abilities of Satan who will oppose Christ and any and all teaching about Christ. Paul speaks of him as the man of lawlessness. That is to say, he doesn't much care for law and order. He doesn't care for moral, immoral distinctions. He is not law-abiding. No, he is lawless. He is criminal in mind and actions. And you couple that with supernatural powers, and we are going to be confronted with a very, very formidable foe. This is no pussycat. This is no pushover. He's predicted to come. Look at verse 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, wonders in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Now understand here that not everything supernatural is of God. Let me say that again. Not everything supernatural is of God. Here is where we have many people that go wrong. Paul tells us that this lawless one, John's word is Antichrist, this Antichrist can perform counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. I ask the question, what makes them counterfeit? The Greek word here in this text is pseudo. So they're pseudo-miracles, false. Pseudo-wonders, pseudo-signs. Well, let me tell you what Paul is not saying. He is not denying that something miraculous occurs. He's not saying that. But the miracles are false because of their intent. What is their intent? You have it in the text. Every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Think about the miracles of Jesus for a moment. The miracles of Jesus, healings, Restorations of deformed limbs, exorcism of demons, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. 
They were all designed to point people to God and the truth of the gospel. The miracles of the lawless one are comprised of, verse 10, every sort of evil that deceives. Verse 11 indicates that they are lies and also wickedness that people delight in. Now the only reason that they would be people that delight in them is because they lack discernment. The intent is to be anti-Christ by postulating a counterfeit which is viewed either as good as the power of God's miracles or superior to. We have a contest going on here. It's not necessarily overt, but it's behind the scenes. There's this lawless one and what he's doing versus what God has done and does and continues to do. So one is using the miracles to deceive, to work evil, to promote wickedness. And you have the Lord Jesus Christ using miracles to point us to the good God that will heal and will be able to overcome those maladies and infirmities. Think of the day in which Jesus did these miracles long before modern medicine and so forth. Now, to illustrate this, think of Moses and Aaron and the snake. Think of Moses and the snake. We read, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians. And they all did the same thing by their secret arts. That is, their occult connections with Satan. I'm reading scripture. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. Bah! Ha ha ha! Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Exodus 7, verses 10 through 12. So, you see, the occult sorcerers were able to duplicate a facsimile thereof of God's miracle through Aaron, but Aaron's staff swallowed up the Egyptians to demonstrate the superiority of God over their idols. They were Satan worshipers. Say, so, uh, how do you say that? Because Paul says in the New Testament, behind every idol is a demon. Well, who's the boss of the demons? It is the prince of the power of this air, the devil, the slanderer. Now, as the narrative unfolds in Exodus, we discover that the Egyptian sorcerers were, were able, they were able to duplicate some of the plagues that God sent on their countrymen. All this to deceive Pharaoh into believing that his idols were as powerful as anything Moses and Aaron had in Jehovah. That was the purpose. And God is in that purpose. Because he doesn't want Pharaoh to give in, can I say it, too quickly. 
For 400 years, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt. And while God is instructing Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, there is also a hardening of Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let them go, so that more plagues can be placed upon him and his wicked countrymen. But that was the purpose. But the time came when God distanced himself from the sorcerer counterfeits. We read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came from came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. I can't even imagine that. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals, and the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of Jehovah. They're learning the hard way, but they're learning. But we read, but Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen just as the Lord had said, as he had predicted. Exodus 8, verse 16 through 19. So, from this point on, the sorcerers are not going to be able to duplicate what Aaron and Moses do in terms of bringing the plagues upon Egypt. And another neat thing, from this point on, none of the plagues touch the Israelites living in the section of Egypt called Goshen. All the plagues are all around them with the Egyptians, but not upon Israel. All to prove who's God and who's not. So the truth is, brethren, that all of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt were designed to demonstrate that their idols were no gods at all. They could not stave off the hand of Jehovah, the only God there is. And with the last and the most horrendous of all the plagues, God said this, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. There's the contest. That's what's going on. I am the Lord. Exodus 12, verse 12. And you have in your bulletin this morning a chart. One on one, one side of that chart is a description of the plagues of Egypt and the god of Egypt that they were uh, opposing. And then the third point of our outline is that future plagues are coming upon our world. And that's on the other chart. And it's a fascinating study in itself. And you can read all of those texts in Revelation that show a duplication of what's coming on our world. And they're, in many ways, a repeat of the plagues of the Old Testament. So study that on yourself, by yourself. But more importantly, why does God send plagues, or to ask it another way, 
Why does he permit the emissaries of Satan to exercise such deceptive and devastating havoc on humanity as counterfeit miracles and so on? Well, if you go back to our text, 2 Thessalonians 2, speaking of the results of the counterfeit miracles which deceive those who are perishing, verse 10, he goes on to say, at the latter part of verse 10, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There's the reason. God permits counterfeit miracles and so on. There's a truth issue here. And the issue is that these people who are all enamored with the counterfeit miracles are warned that Satan has supernatural powers. And when they are told that God is not the originator of all things miraculous, they don't want to hear that. They want to believe these miracles are of God when they're not. They prefer the delusion. Why? Because they love the excitement, they love the thrill, they love the satisfaction of the miraculous, and they don't much care if it comes from God or the devil. But to soothe their conscience, they say it's of God. You know, brethren, this is our age. This is our age. This is our country. This is the church, sadly, in America, with its faith healers and special revelations and inner voices from God and tongue speaking and demon exorcisms and weeping icons and healing waters and on and on and on it goes. Whatever is sensational, that is to say, whatever appeals to the senses, is valued more than what addresses the mind. People prefer to emote through me, but don't cause me to think. Feelings rule, reason is passé. But our God, the God of the Bible, the only God there is, says... Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 1, verse 18 through 20. So what we find here is God is proposing to his sinning people that they talk things out. Let's reason this out. Let's think this through, folks. He wants them to consider what a life of disobedience leads to and how different things will be if there will be willing, and obedience, willing obedience to God's word. And he warns that the sword will devour the rebellious. But for many, you know, that's just too much negativity. The same as in our text. Paul is raining on their parade. He is ruining their dream. He's bursting their bubble. They like the sensation. They prefer the miraculous. They're intoxicated by the supernatural and they do not want to hear anything about counterfeit. Miracle signs and wonders. They want to believe that it's God in all of these things. The deception has done its work. 
Error is preferred over right, lies over truth, and wickedness over holiness. Look at verse 11. For this reason, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. There is a limit, brethren, with God to the challenging of wrong ideas and the sinful practices in men. Yes, true. God is patient. Yes, he is long-suffering. That's why the wicked are not immediately struck dead when they progress in their sin and refuse to repent. But the days of Noah stand as a warning to us. And there we read, The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. For he is mortal, and his days will be 120 years. Genesis 6, verse 3. As long as it took Noah to build the ark. That's, that's as long as I'll contend with you. That's as long as I'll argue with you. That's as long as I will preach the gospel to you and give you opportunity to repent. But I'm not going to do it forever. There's a limit to the patience of God. Peter writes, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. But with that said, people do perish, don't they? People, there are people that never come to repentance. Why? They prefer the counterfeit over the genuine. They prefer the lies over truth. And so God gives people what they want. It's one of the ways he, way he judges people. You want this? Okay. You get it. It's yours. He stops, put it this way, he stops reasoning with them. stops reasoning with them. He stops contending with them. They prefer delusions, so he gives them delusion. But all of this is a curse. It's, it's a curse, not a blessing, because in the end, Paul writes, they perish. Let me say it as kindly as I can, folks. It is good, it is good if Bible preaching disturbs you, that's good. It is to be preferred if the gospel disturbs you and even makes you angry. It means that God is not giving up on you. It means that God is convicting you of sin. It means that God is continuing to call you to repentance while there's still time to do that. This is why the author of Hebrews wrote, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if 
We hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Say, it's good if you can hear His voice. Hebrews 3, verse 6 through 9. God's voice is heard through the words written in the Bible and preached as we explain them, the way to peace with God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's His gospel, not mine. We're just extrapolating it from the Scriptures and giving it forth as it's written there. So it's good to be convicted. That's real good. It's good to be disturbed. Better than to fall asleep from some siren standing along the shore saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Secondly, then, and lastly, there is peace for God's people concerning the future. Believers are such, we have it in our text, believers are such who, being chosen and loved by God, prefer the truth over lies. That's what distinguishes us. Paul calls them, listen to this, verse 13, brothers loved by the Lord. Wow. How does Paul know they are loved by the Lord? He goes on, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that new nature, and what? Belief in the truth. God chose you to believe the truth. could even say it this way, that faith is God's gift. It's not that the New Testament days were devoid of charlatans and deceivers and the like. Paul warned the Corinthian church of false apostles, he writes, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 through 15. But because of the love of God, the Corinthians and the Thessalonians, to name another, were not snookered by these deceivers. No, they saw through their deceptions recognized the lies, believed the truth of the gospel. In other words, they showed discernment. They were discerning. Say, well, pat them on the back. Isn't that wonderful? Well, discernment is the gift of God. God's the one who gets patted on the back. They were given faith, given discernment. In this soup, if you think of it, of idolatry and false apostles. And same way as it's coming in end times with this lawless one that does many and will be able to do counterfeit miracles. They tested the spirits to see if they were from God. So well, how do you do that? 
The test then was the same test today. And here it is. I'm reading it right out of the book. Right out of 1 John 4. This is how we can recognize the Spirit of God versus any other kind of spirit that might be out there. Okay? This is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and is now already in the world. 1 John 4, verse 2 and 3. There's the test. Jesus had something to say about this too. We read when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they, who do they say that I am? And they replied, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, kind of come back from the dead thing. Others say, well, you are Elijah. Remember in the Old Testament, Elijah was whisked away to heaven alive, never suffered death, taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. So the people are thinking, oh, well, now Elijah alive has come back from heaven, and that's who this Jesus is. Still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they certainly believed in resurrection, didn't they? They believed in, and taught those things. So Jesus is listening to this explanation from the disciples, and he asks them a second question. Um, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say? that I am. Simon Peter, spokesman for the group, answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 16. Right answer. And Jesus went on to say, Oh, Peter, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You didn't learn that in a seminary school. <laughs> that was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. You've been a recipient of truth. You've been a recipient of faith. Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not talking about just mouthing the words. Anybody can say, Jesus is Lord, and mouth the words. He means saying it, believing it, meaning it. No one can acknowledge, can believe that Jesus is the Lord and say it and really mean it, except by the Holy Spirit. Believers were loved by God. And the demonstration of that is that we believe in Christ, we believe the truth. 
And then secondly and lastly, God's people are kept by the power of God through the dark future days. Wickedness is going to get worse, but we're going to be kept by it, by God. Look at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings that we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Hold fast to the teachings passed on to you. Do you ever know a person who always seems to have an itch for the novel? The new? They're always pursuing, pursuing the new. Any new thing that comes down the pike, they latch onto that. They're in the Bible. Paul writes about them. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They've got a form, formalized godliness, but no power in it. Having a formalized, or, or having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He says, have nothing to do with them. Oh, oh really? Yeah, he goes on. They are, here's the reason, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 and following. See, bouncing from the next, from one thing to the next, the new, the new, the new, the new, the latest, the latest, the latest, the latest but never able to sink their teeth into the truth and say, this is the truth of God. By the way, truth is true and doesn't change. It's true yesterday, it's true today. If they said it was true yesterday and it's not true today, then it wasn't true yesterday. We were deceived. Such people's lives consist of the search. Lacking both discernment and faith, they, their search never ends. Never ends. I say it very kindly for the Christian, our search has ended. The truth is found. The truth found is our peace. Look at verse 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement, that is, he saved you for all eternity, and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Deed and word is here. That's temporal encouragement. We could say it this way. Once your eternal issues are, are settled, the temporal issues kind of resolve themselves. God who saved us has promised, here it is, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Things are going to go from bad to worse as we move to the end of the age. John says we're in the last hour, and Jesus says that's okay. I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. And David in the Old Testament worded it this way, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Even if I go through evil, even if I stare death in the face, I'll fear no evil, 
for you are with me. Do you know Christ this morning? You know all of these hurts that we've studied in these last 19 weeks? The answer to all of those hurts is the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what hurt we're talking about. The preservation of our lives is in him who rules the universe. And while things are going to go from bad to worse, it is preparatory for his coming again. The scripture says every eye will see him, every knee will bow before him, every tongue will confess that Christ is the Lord. It's just that we believers have a head start on that. We already confess him as Lord. We already admit him as Savior. And because of that, there's peace in the midst of of coming turmoil. Well, I hope this series has been an encouragement to you. I'm thinking of a new series called Joyful Souls. And we're going to move completely to the opposite end of the spectrum. I don't know if I'll start that next week or not. Still kind of chewing it all over in my brain, getting some feedback from others, and we'll see what happens. Lord, we thank you for your grace and goodness to us. If we're hurtful souls, it's because we live in a cursed world and we wrestle with our own sin. But for all of our hurts, Jesus Christ is the answer. For that one that's outside of you this morning, doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, will you find them today? Will you find them? Bring them to conviction. And beyond conviction, bring them to repentance and faith. Lots of people get convicted when they hear preaching from, of the gospel and then they go away and they forget what they heard Lord please drive with us today don't let up don't let us go back to sleep once we've been awakened disturb us we don't want to be like these people in the truth that settle for the counterfeit and call it God because it tantalizes their sensations we want to be people of the truth. And the truth is that we are sinners that need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. Bless and honor Him today. Encourage hearts of believers. Save those that are lost. For the glory of Christ we ask. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity.